We've been waiting for clarifying regulations for several years now. Will commercial delivery drones ever take off? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Executive Editor of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The Federal Aviation Administration has been considering how to regulate drone operations for more than three years. Today, we seem to be not much closer to finalization of those rules. Meanwhile, drone operations are launching in multiple places outside the U.S. But we could begin seeing progress here at last. A series of pilot programs in this country will soon get underway, and some of the questions about the safety and security of drones are beginning to be answered. Today, we welcome back to the program attorney Lisa Elman, partner in the firm of Hogan Lovells, who focuses on domestic drones law and policy. She'll bring us up to date on the development of rules that will enable the regular deployment of delivery drones. We'll find out what has delayed FAA from moving forward with a regulatory regime and why it's loosening up now. And what about those air taxis? Here's my conversation with Lisa Elman. Lisa Elman, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks for having me. I should also congratulate you for being named a trailblazer in technology law for 2019 by the National Law Journal. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I just feel very lucky to be working in an innovative industry and to help move technology forward. Certainly a a subject that's moving very fast. And in fact, it's been three and a half years since we had you on the show. And I guess in terms of the rate of technology advancement in drones and the like, that's practically a prehistoric age. So we might have a lot of (laughs) catching up to do here, a lot to talk about. But I want to start with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. What in the last three years has happened? There was a lot of preliminary stuff and a lot of stuff that was yet to be decided. What's going on with the FAA in terms of its policy on the use of commercial drones? Yeah, so there's a lot that has happened, a lot over the last three years. I'd start about three years ago, the Part 107, which was the small drone rule, went into effect. So that was obviously a huge step forward for the commercial drone industry. Previously, if you wanted to fly commercial drones here in the United States, you actually had to get special permission or approval from the FAA in order to be able to operate. That changed with Part 107 going into effect, and now any entity can operate under that rule that as long as you're flying below 400 feet, within visual on a site, not over people, there's all kinds of amazing use cases for commercial drones, and that rule really opened the door for many of those use cases to come to fruition. But that said, Part 107 enabled only very low-risk drone flights within some pretty strict guidelines, including, like I said, not over people within visual on a site during daytime hours, for example. And so something else that we've seen over the last few years, that companies and industry is really focused on, in order to move the industry forward, we really need expanded operations, flights beyond visual on a site, operations over people, 
operations at night, for example. There's been a lot of work that's been done with the FAA and others in order to move those broad policy makings forward. In the meantime, there's a waiver process by which as a company or a pilot or an operator, you can apply for an approval from the FAA in order to fly outside the scope or outside the boundaries of the rules under certificate of waiver or a waiver approval. But in the meantime, the FAA is drafting some rules that will broadly enable some of these expanded operations. But there are still a number of things that need to happen in the meantime. And I would also just add that in the last year or two, there's been a new kind of pilot program that the FAA has spearheaded with the White House and the Department of Transportation called the UAS Integration Pilot Program, what's known as the IPP. And under that program, the FAA has established a working relationship with nine states or localities or tribes, the Choctaw Nation, and then some cities and states that are involved with that program who have also partnered with industry. Mm -hmm. And all of those parties work together in order to get approvals for beyond visual on a site or package delivery or use of drones in new and innovative ways. And that's been an important step forward as well. So at the moment, in order to obtain a waiver of those initial restrictions, that sort of sounds like a, on a case-by-case basis. Do you have to individually do that with each drone or with each operator or in each state or in each instance or, or what exactly? Yeah, it's a great question, Bob. And frankly, it just depends on the nature of the operation that you wish to undertake. So if I want to fly beyond visual line of sight, for example, generally the FAA has approved those operations on clearly a case-by-case basis, but also a location-by-location basis. So in a specific location, you're able to fly, say, beyond visual line of sight, but using visual observers in order to see other aircraft that may be intruding into the airspace. For operations over people, however, if you've gotten an operations over people waiver, for example, that's been generally nationwide, although those are very limited in number, the night waivers are nationwide. They vary depending on the complexity of the operation that is requested. So there's no one answer to that, but yes, it is a case-by-case basis approval. I guess it depends on the use of the drones, too, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, it's hard to, like, watch a movie today that doesn't include a drone shot. So we can certainly see that Mm -hmm. drones have become quite prevalent in the world of cinema and documentary filming and stuff like that. But what I want to talk about here is is commercial delivery, drone delivery, Mm -hmm. which absolutely requires that all of those restrictions be waived. You can't have operator line of sight. You can't worry about it going over people. You can't worry about night restrictions if you need to deliver packages. So how far are we toward the drone becoming an actual instrument of package delivery? Yeah, it's a huge, really, really exciting use case. There's obviously consumer drone delivery, drone delivery to consumers. There's cargo drone delivery. There's also, of course, medical drone delivery. We're seeing in Rwanda, for example, the company Zipline is working nationwide to deliver blood across the country. In Switzerland, for example, the company Matternet is doing the same thing between hospitals over Zurich, like actually over the city. So we're seeing a lot of activity internationally. There are a number of regulatory issues in terms of in order to operate here in the United States. It was a big deal recently that Wing, which is the drone delivery unit of Alphabet, had received the FAA's first approval to use drones to carry and deliver packages commercially here in the U.S. That is a step on the way to getting broad authorization, but it was one step. But that was an important 
symbolic step forward. The FAA is working with a number of companies on this, and the hope is that through the IPP, which I mentioned, they're doing a bunch of drone delivery pilot programs. It's helpful. What they really need is data and understanding of how these drone operations will work and how they can happen safely, and that's what industry is really bringing to the table. Yeah, I've also been reading a successful use of drone for uh, consumer package deliveries in Iceland. And it makes me wonder, you mentioned all those other countries. Would it be the case that other countries are actually ahead of the U.S. in terms of progress toward the regular and accepted use of drones for delivery? In many cases, yes. I mean, I know that Wing, for example, has been flying, doing consumer drone delivery in Australia. And that's something that they've received a lot of feedback and a lot of interest in their Australia operations. Other companies are flying in other countries. I mentioned that Matternet is flying in Switzerland, Zipline in Rwanda. And I know there are many other companies that are doing the same thing. In many cases, the international community has moved forward more quickly. It's a timeless issue that technology just moves more quickly than policymaking. And and we have a large, complex airspace here in the United States. And so the policies have somewhat lagged behind here in the U.S. And so in many cases, companies have found it helpful to go abroad and fly and get research and development, which is, of course, what, not what we want to see. We want to move the policymaking and regulations forward here in the U.S. so that here is a place where innovation can truly thrive. That is the goal of what I do working with clients. That's the goal of what I do leading the Commercial Drone Alliance. That's what we're trying to do as an industry. I must confess my heart sank a little bit when I heard you say that the FAA is drafting rules because three years ago I heard that the FAA was drafting mm-hmm. rules. Are these the same rules we're still waiting for or is this <laughs> another group of rules and regulations? It really is the same rules. And what happened was a few years ago, for example, the FAA had drafted an operations over people draft and it was moving through the interagency process when all of a sudden the national security agencies raised their hands and they said, wait a second, hold on, we're worried about drone security issues. We don't want to enable expanded operations until we have remote identification in place, until there's counter-drone technology that's enabled for law enforcement and national security agencies. And so there was essentially two years that all of this was somewhat put on hold, the years of what we would call the years of drone security, where the national security agencies, it's, it's of course an interagency process. The FAA is the safety federal agency stakeholder at the table, along with DOT, but there are other agencies would have their own issues, and the security agencies mandated that the FAA broadly require remote identification, meaning right now registration is required in order to use a drone, but that's a physical marking on the aircraft. What is not yet required but will be required is a virtual drone license plate requirement. That's known as remote identification. As the FAA had been working through its operations over people draft, they realized, oh, wow, we actually need a remote identification rule in order to actually get the operations over people rule through. So they stopped what they were doing on operations over people and started working on remote identification. (laughs) Can't do all Um, that stuff at the same time, I guess, huh? Exactly. So so there's been many stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Are we moving toward a national regime of regulation, or is it possible that even in the future when drones are regularly operating, that states and cities and other types of urban areas may also be allowed to ban them or regulate them within their own areas? It's a great question, and that's something that's been talked about as well through the IPP, the purpose of the federal government, the FAA, partnering with states and localities. One of the mandates of the IPP was to reach out to the community and work on what makes sense in terms of local regulation, if at all, of drone technology. Now, it's very clear that 
it, it simply works best for the entire system, that there are federal preemption concerns. So the FAA has jurisdiction over the safety and operation of the national airspace. So if a town or locality is looking to ban the use of drones, for example, that likely would not be allowed. However, states and localities traditionally regulate privacy and property rights. And so you've seen states and localities try to regulate the use of drones around privacy and property rights. And that's something where it's somewhat of a gray area. But it's very clear that for the industry, for safety, it makes most sense to have these rules made at a national level. But that's something that's getting a lot of attention right now. But not necessarily 100% guaranteed that that'll be the case if uh, it it could be brought up. Localities could could get into the game. What have we learned so far about the feasibility of regular drone operation in urban areas, or do we not have enough data to make any conclusions at all about whether indeed it is possible to deploy drones to a great degree in a crowded urban area close to a lot of airports and close to a lot of tall buildings and a lot of people in traffic? Have we learned anything yet? Well, you've identified many of the issues, right? Obviously, uh, some of the amazing use cases for drones in urban areas, everything from disaster response to law enforcement uses of drones to news gathering and more. Companies want to be able to fly drones where people are, like package delivery is another example. One challenge there is that the FAA recently issued a proposed rule on operations over people. So after this two-year delay, there was a release earlier this year of an operations over people draft. Unfortunately, that draft was very strict as written, and it received a lot of blowback from industry because it didn't appear based on any rational risk analysis. And that's something that, of course, has been very concerning to industry. One of the ways in which it didn't make a whole lot of sense was that the proposed rule would ban drone flights over moving vehicles. So essentially it would ban huh. drone flights over roads. That's not going to work. <laughs> um, that's not going to work. The Commercial Drone Alliance, many of our Hogan Lovells clients, everyone, there was a lot of industry response to that proposal. I think there was a lot of strong concern over that proposal. It was just a proposal, so there is still time to, to fix it, but we'll have to see where that goes. And for that matter, in terms of aviation, I mean, take, for instance, I think we might have discussed this earlier about, for as an example, the San Francisco Bay Area, where flight paths take up a good part of the area, mm-hmm. the multiple airports around here and how everything is so concentrated. Is it possible to operate drones in an area like that where you have so many aviation concerns? Well, you always, of course, need your airspace authorization. So in addition to your operational approval, in addition to having your pilot certificate, you also need your airspace approval. One of the positives or areas of progress over the last few years has been the introduction of LANS, the Low Altitude Authorization Notification Capability, which is a long way of saying essentially automating the airspace authorization approvals for what the FAA would consider low-risk areas. Generally, when you apply for an airspace authorization, it could take up to 90 days if you're doing so through the, the normal process. This automates it so that you're getting your approval in real time. So it depends on where you're flying. If you're right next to a busy airport, you still may have trouble, but if you're flying in controlled airspace and need approval, you can check the facilities maps to see what approval you can get. Does it seem like that 400-foot limit is going to be pretty much it, or will you be able to go beyond that in the future as drones become more prevalent? Well, certainly as drones become more prevalent, right now, the current model for UAS integration is still segregated airspace to a large extent. 
over time by introducing what we would describe as highways in the sky or unmanned traffic management systems, UTM. This has been a big part of the last over the last few years as well in terms of progress. The idea, and NASA has partnered with industry on this, it's now over at the FAA for implementation. The idea of a UTM is to actually integrate the airspace where you have drones flying among manned aircraft in corridors and essentially organizing the airspace in order to make room for new entrants. I mean, you mentioned small drone package delivery. Another new technology that's getting a ton of attention right now that's really incredibly exciting are these electric vertical takeoff and landing air taxis, automated air taxis, what's known as urban air mobility, not just package delivery, but people delivery. And that mm-hmm. there's a ton of excitement for that. Imagine the environmental impacts to, for good. Imagine the ability to keep cars off the roads. Imagine making our air travel, and, and you have big companies entering this new space. UTM really needs to be implemented in order to open up those possibilities. Yeah, and also thinking about operating heights, for instance, I've heard that in order to deliver to, say, urban areas like large skyscrapers and big apartment buildings, in a lot of cases, you might need to be delivering to the roof of that building. Well, there are a lot of buildings in this country that are higher than 400 feet. And in Mm -hmm. that case, the drone would have to go up pretty high in order to reach the roof of a skyscraper. So Mm -hmm. is that a possibility that that could happen? Well, right now under Part 107, you know, you can fly up to 400 feet or within 400 feet of a structure, right? So that allows for operations such as cell tower inspections, which, for example, could be very tall, but make sure that there are other use cases involving vertical structures that would be covered under Part 107. But yes, I mean, moving forward in some ways, and I'm just kind of hypothetically based on your fact pattern that you present, in some ways that's incredibly safe because there really shouldn't be manned aircraft flying very low over a skyscraper. Now, on the other hand, there's probably helicopters around, so you want to make sure that you're communicating with other airspace participants. Sure. You have helicopter pads Probably. on top of these many of these buildings. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, so what is your best guess, Lisa, at this point? As to when the the skies may clear, and I say that metaphorically because it could be quite the opposite once drones start flying to a great degree, when do you think that the uh, regulatory regime will pretty much be put into place, solidified, and drones will become an actual everyday occurrence on the commercial side in terms of years or months or whenever? What's your best guess? Well, we're hoping to see a remote ID proposal come out this fall, so sometime in September is when the FAA has been promising. And within a year or two after that, we should see a final remote ID rule, which will broadly require remote identification. Once that hurdle has been lifted, I think that we'll see broad expanded commercial drone operations in short order. I think that is the biggest thing that's been holding up the industry. I think that's something that you have essentially at this point broad stakeholder agreement that it's necessary. And the only question is how to implement it. And I think that once we see that, we'll see operations over people. We'll see hopefully next beyond visual on a site and more. And so I would say in the next few years, we will see huge progress in opening up the commercial drone industry. Well, we'll be looking to the sky, and maybe we'll check back in with you and see if things have have developed as as hoped for and expected. But in the meantime, Lisa Elman, Hogan Lovells, thank you so much for coming back to the show to bring us up to date on what's going on in the world of drones. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me.
That was my conversation with attorney Lisa Elman of Hogan Lovells, bringing us up to date on regulations allowing for the operation of commercial delivery drones. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. If any comments or suggestions on this or any episode, email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.